Well, good morning once again. It is good to be back among the people on whom the first rays of sunlight strike the state of New York. <laughs> it's always a delight to be with you. You always make us feel very encouraged. And we love the spirit in your church. If we were closer, we'd be here with you every Sunday. No question about that. Have you ever stopped to ponder how you arrived here today? How you ended up sitting in this worship service? What was it that swept you into church while thousands of people like you wouldn't give a thought to making the choice that you made this morning? Uh, many of them might even call your choice foolishness. What life events brought you here today? When John wrote his gospel account about what he witnessed during the three years that he was a disciple of Jesus, he included an account of Jesus bringing his dear friend Lazarus back to life after Lazarus' dead body had been in a tomb four days. The details of what happened that day have given me courage to face the hardest times in my life. What Jesus did for Lazarus has granted me great joy and has given me courage and confidence that I really can trust God with everything. I'm convinced that it can do the same for you. Let me point today to three particular truths from this passage in the Bible that have profoundly shaped my understanding about the astonishing God whom we worship here today. Here are these three truths. First, that God orchestrates the events of our lives to bring glory to himself. Next, that Jesus' empathy for our pain and suffering is real and deep. And finally, that only the power of God can bring a dead man to life. Now, that last one could sound a little odd at first hearing, but by the time we finish today, it is my prayer that you will understand why it gives me confidence to realize that it was God who himself initiated my coming to faith in Jesus Christ so many years ago. And why I'm convinced that your confidence and joy in Christ will be strengthened and encouraged today as we take time to dig deep into the Word of God. Let us begin by reading through the first few verses of the Gospel of John, chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified 
through it. Heavenly Father, open my mouth that my lips may declare your praise. Amen. Our story centers around a family that is dear to Jesus, precious to him, but a family who has become suddenly desperate. Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, are some of Jesus' closest friends among those who are not his disciples. And these close friends live in a suburb of Jerusalem called Bethany. Now, Jerusalem sits on a hilltop above the Kidron Valley. And to get to Bethany from Jerusalem, you would go down into the valley and up toward the Mount of Olives. Now, just past that rise, you would arrive at the quiet little village of Bethany. And there at his home in Bethany, Lazarus has contracted a dangerous illness. So Mary and Martha dispatch a messenger to find Jesus, who is ministering in Jericho. Jericho is a large city much further to the east. And to get to Jericho, the messenger carrying this message from Mary and Martha to Jesus must take a two-day journey over mountainous terrains and down into the Jordan River Valley. So by the time the messenger arrives, finds Jesus, and tells him, Lord, the one whom you love is really, really sick, two days have already passed. Jesus immediately replies, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So the first thing that we learn is that God is actively orchestrating the events of people's lives in such a way as to bring glory to himself. There's a larger purpose at work here. Both God the Father and God the Son will be glorified through this illness that has overtaken Lazarus. It's likely that the messenger returns immediately to Bethany with the good news that will encourage the sisters. There is just one problem. That same day, the messenger arrives in Jericho and delivers the message to Jesus. Back in Bethany, Lazarus has died. We might wonder how Jesus could be so badly mistaken about Lazarus. Let's pick up our reading at verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? You see, in the previous chapter of John, Jesus had been in Jerusalem where a crowd of religious rulers had tried to execute him for blasphemy. And the, the scripture says, however, that Jesus escaped their grasp. So that's why his disciples are alarmed to hear them, him say that they're heading back to Bethany, the village next door to Jerusalem. Let's skip ahead in our reading to verse 11. After saying these things, Jesus said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Well, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. 
Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So because Jesus knows how this story will end, he speaks truly when he says this sickness will not end in death. In fact, Jesus has already delayed his departure by two more days intentionally so that by the time he and his disciples arrive in Bethany two days later, Lazarus has already been dead for four days. But what really happens to Mary and Martha will be unexpected. Mary and Martha have lost all hope because their brother Lazarus is dead and they are certain that death ends everything. So that what really happens will be very different from what the sisters expect will happen. Back to our text, verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when, Mary, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Sometime during that fourth day of mourning for Lazarus, someone rushes to Martha with the news that Jesus and his disciples have been spotted approaching the village. Not waiting for Jesus to arrive at their home, Martha hurries out to intercept him to tell him that he's too late. Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. Martha's words have a hint of rebuke about them. They express a faith like the faith many of us have, a kind of half-faith, half-doubt. You do all these miracles for others. Couldn't you have helped us in our most desperate hour? Please notice that Jesus doesn't show disappointment at her lack of trust in him. Isn't that what you and I would typically fear? Don't you uh, and I typically expect that when we show weakness of faith in God's promise to work vigilantly, for our good, that our Father will be displeased with us? 
Instead, Jesus reassures her and reminds her of his power and his love. Martha, I am the resurrection and the life, and anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. But it, Martha is, shall we say, not feeling it. And clearly, Jesus isn't getting it. She wants him to really feel her disappointment. And so it's time to bring in the crying sister, Mary. Look at verse 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? <sighs> Mary is unaware of Jesus' arrival. Martha tells her the teacher is here and wants to see you. So immediately Mary rushes out of the house, and the mourners who are with her follow, assuming she's going to the tomb where Lazarus has been laid to rest. But Mary has fled to Jesus. And when she reaches him, she falls at his feet in tears. Mary uses the exact same words that Martha said earlier. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But Mary says it with a gush of tears and a rush of sorrow. You can almost see her there. Had Jesus' feet fallen in the Judean dust, sobbing and weeping, almost violently, heartbroken, helpless, her hopes vanished after four days of mourning for her brother. And that's when we come upon one of the most remarkable verses in the entire Bible. One that reveals a side of our Savior that we often find hard to believe. Verse 35 says simply, Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. But the word used here for weeping is more than merely shedding a tear or two. It describes a heavy type of uncontrollable sobbing and gasping for air with no regard for those who might see you. Jesus is so deeply moved and visibly distressed that even those who had been sent to spy on him for the religious rulers in Jerusalem were staggered 
by the depth of his anguish and sorrow. Isaiah prophesied of the Messiah who would one day come saying, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And this might have been the moment when that prophecy was first fulfilled. What about your griefs in life? Whenever you go through moments or seasons of deep, hurtful grief or bitter sorrow and disappointment, you need to remember this scene at Bethany. Remember how Jesus responds when Mary weeps for her lost brother. This is not an unfeeling, insensitive, immovable, distant deity. This is God become man, fully man, fully human. James Boyce points to this truth about Jesus when he asks, are you suffering? He knows it. Are you in tears? He has been there before you. Are you distressed? So was he. But he went on to overcome these things so that we might overcome them. And meanwhile, he is one who understands you and to whom you may come. Back to verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took the stone away, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with the cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So now the scripture shifts our focus from a really desperate family to a really dead man. Lazarus is really, really dead. What is about to happen is ordained by God so that through this miracle, the Son of God would indeed be glorified before the hundreds of people who are there to witness this miracle. Everyone present will see that Jesus commands the power of life over death. Many of the Jews who had come to comfort the sisters in their grief will see what Jesus does and put their faith in him. Many of the other Jews who had come to spy on Jesus will report this miracle back to the Jewish leaders, and this news sparks greater urgency in their plot to kill Jesus. But through it all, God will carry out a detailed plan that had its origins in eternity past. The 
before the world was ever even created. The crowd moves to the place where Lazarus has been entombed. It is a cave, and a huge stone lays against it, sealing the tomb. That's when Jesus says, take away the stone. Once again, Martha is convinced that Jesus isn't getting it. Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been there four days. Now through these blunt words spoken publicly by Martha, everyone in the huge crowd that is witnessing these events is brought face to face with one single undeniable fact. Lazarus is dead. He's not just dead, he's really, really, really dead. Everyone knows because anyone can walk by the tomb and smell the aroma of death, the decay of a body for which there is no longer any possible hope of life. The point is this. Lazarus is really, really, really helpless. What he needs is someone to rescue him from death. I wonder how many of you today have ever been involved in a rescue. It doesn't happen very often in life unless you do it as a profession. But when you've been involved in a rescue, you never forget it. A number of years ago, I was returning home to Colorado Springs from a seminar in Denver, driving along Interstate 25 at dusk just before the sun had set completely. About a quarter mile ahead of me, I noticed some headlights spinning wildly, and then traffic ahead of me came to a complete stop. And that's when I saw him. Sprawled on the other side of the road, next to a VW Beetle that had been knocked across into oncoming lanes, was a man on his back, completely still. In the distance, the headlights of Oncoming traffic started popping up just over the top of the hill, less than a mile away. And I realized that within about 30 seconds, these cars would reach the place where this man lay completely helpless, and I knew he would likely be run over. So I pulled off the road, jumped out of the car, and ran to his side. He was completely unresponsive, but I had to get him off the highway. So I pulled his limp body off the pavement into the 20-foot wide strip of grass that divided this highway out west. To do that, I had to put my arm under his head to steady it in case the neck had been broken. And then when I got him off onto the grass, and I pulled my arm out, the sleeve was covered in blood. The man was either unconscious or dead. I, I didn't know which. But at that moment, I was the only hope he had. It would take an ambulance at least 10 minutes to get there from the nearest town. And that's when my CPR training kicked in. Three times I had to restart the man's breathing before the paramedics arrived and took over. They put him in the ambulance, drove off, and I drove home. The next day I got a phone call from the man's brother. I just wanted to thank you, he said. 
tell you that he's going to be fine. He suffered a broken neck in the crash. And the doctor said it was a miracle that he had no damage to his spinal cord where the neck broke. The man was absolutely helpless, and he was in grave danger. There was absolutely nothing he could do to take charge of his situation. To have any hope of life, he needed someone else outside himself to take the initiative. And like the man lying unconscious on the highway with a broken neck and cars bearing down on him, there is absolutely nothing Lazarus can do to take charge of his situation. To have any hope of life, Lazarus needs someone outside himself to come and take the initiative. This story of Lazarus is one of the best illustrations of why so many people do not respond to the words of the gospel. You see, only the power of God can bring a dead man to life. The reason people don't respond to the gospel is because they're spiritually dead and incapable of responding. This is what the Apostle Paul meant when he wrote to the church at Ephesus and said, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Totally unresponsive deadness is the physical condition in which we find Lazarus. Lazarus is really, really, really helpless. And like Lazarus, Romans 6 tells us plainly that while we were still helpless, at the right time, God initiated our rescue. Let's go back to the passage we, we read before. Back in Bethany, Jesus stands before the tomb where Lazarus has, was laid four days earlier. And let me reread from verse 41. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. But there's a problem here. When Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out, how is it physically possible for Lazarus to respond to this command? How do his ears pick up the vibrations of air that make sound waves? Because his eardrums are stiff and unmoving. How does his brain receive the electrical impulses from the ears and translate these sounds into words and concepts? Because his brain is literally a skull full of mush. How do his muscles respond to the command of his brain to get up and walk out? Because his muscles are disintegrating at the cellular level, and they had been for days. So we must ask, how is it physically possible for Lazarus to respond to Jesus' command? 
The answer leaps out of the pages of Ezekiel's prophecy of the dry bones, which we had read earlier. Found in chapter 37 of the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. In that prophecy, the Spirit of the Lord brings Ezekiel to the middle of a valley which had been the site of an ancient battle. The valley, valley is full of bones parched over years of time by the desert sun. These bones are all that is left of the dead bodies of a vast army. And as Ezekiel looks over this devastating sight, God asks his prophet, Son of man, can these bones live? <laughs> I said, Oh, sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then God proclaims, This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. And I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. Ezekiel has been commanded by God to proclaim his word to these dead, helpless bones. And Ezekiel is faithful to his duty. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them. And they came to life and stood up on their feet. Now there are two different audiences for whom this prophecy is intended. It is intended first for the Israelites of that day, and secondarily for all of God's people from that time onward. The prophecy is meant to be the occasion of life arising out of death physically, that is to be remembered as a word picture of how life rises out of death spiritually. And after witnessing this miracle, Ezekiel is to give the following message to the nation of Israel. This is what the sovereign Lord says, O oh, my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken. And I have done it, declares the Lord. This prophecy helps you and me to comprehend what is happening to Lazarus on that fateful day. When Jesus calls out to Lazarus, more than merely the sound of his voice carries forth. There is power in that word that goes forth within him, from within him, and that Power transforms the body of Lazarus and enables him to respond to Jesus' command. The power of God is the reason that Lazarus, his body fully regenerated, comes out of the tomb obedient to the command of Jesus because Lazarus is now physically capable of obeying the spoken command of God the Son. So why does this matter to you and me? That only the power of God can bring a dead man to life. How does this illustration of Lazarus being helplessly dead and helplessly alive from the dead apply to your Christian life? Let me suggest three ways. It strengthens your assurance of salvation. It clarifies your role in evangelism. 
and it focuses your work for the kingdom of God. Let's go through those. First, what we learn today strengthens our assurance of salvation. Remember what Jesus said to Martha in verse 40. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Dear friends, have we not seen the glory of God at work in our individual lives, in the life of this church? What the apostle wrote to the church at Philippi is also meant for us today. For I am confident, he writes, of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you all will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God's initiative is the cause of our salvation. Our response is the consequence of his power at work in us. Now that's worth repeating. God's initiative is the cause of our salvation. Our response is the consequence of his power at work in us. When we respond in obedience, it is a sign that God has initiated a good work in us. Second, what we learn today also clarifies our role in evangelism. Only the power of God can bring a dead man to life. Friends, you and I don't have the power to give spiritual life to another person. Our words cannot convince. Our reasonings cannot persuade. Our arguments cannot move one who is dead. Those who are spiritually dead need a rescuer who has within himself the power of eternal life over death. We cannot persuade people to new life, but the Bible does point out that we can persuade God to act as we ask him in prayer. Finally, what we learn today focuses our work for God's kingdom by helping us to see how we fit into the big picture of God's plan. Our role in evangelism is not to bring people to life, but to let them see the gospel at work in us. Maybe you've heard that famous quote from St. Francis of the Italian city Assisi. Preach Christ at all times when necessary use words. Most of us tend to think of evangelism and witnessing as something that must involve words. It's much more than mere words. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church, for the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. So Christian, remember this. The God of heaven and earth is remaking you, and it shows. He has blessed you with changes in your life that make you stand out from the crowd. And when unchurched people see this, some of them will want to be around you, and some will ask questions about why you are the way you are. Peter tells us 
then always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that's in you. Whatever you do, it's because God's power has given you life. And by merely walking around and being a blessing to everyone you meet, you are a living example of God's power put on display so that others may see you and give glory to God. Now, not everyone's a home run hitter evangelistically, not many. <laughs> but just by being you, maybe you can get someone to first base. So if God has gifted you with the gift of hospitality or the ability to encourage people or to be a listening ear or with the skill of making repairs or with a love for gardening or playing basketball at the park, use these gifts without guilt. For that is why God has so equipped you. And when necessary, use your own words to give a simple answer to questions about the hope that you have that God has given you for life now and life eternal. So back to the question I asked at the beginning of this sermon. Have you ever stopped to ponder the events that swept you into this church service today? Now we know that it all started when the Lord God of heaven and earth called you out of your spiritual tomb where you lay dead and helpless. For only the power of God can bring those who are spiritually dead to life. Therefore, Jesus said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. For once God calls you from your tomb, he will continue to orchestrate the events of your life to bring glory to himself, to fill your life with the joy purpose that fills the souls of those who have been made truly alive in Christ. Oh, Father, how remarkable, how unbelievable, but now how much more this makes sense Take our lives, Lord, take our minds, our hearts, and fix them to the reality that while we were dead and while we were helpless, you took initiative. You chose to save us. You chose to love us. And now you chose to let your glory shine in us, in us, weak, sinful human beings who day by day are being transformed more and more into the likeness and the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. May he be seen in us today, and may we take courage. Lord, give each of us this week something memorable to latch on to, to encourage our faith to see you are truly at work in me, and I give you glory for your mercy, your grace, and your power, which brings me to life.
Let us be your humble servants. Let our lives bring you glory. This we pray in the name of our holy Lord, our Jesus Christ, who made it possible by giving his life for ours. Thank you in his name.